Welcome to The Legal Lowdown. I'm your host, Diana Baudet, and joining me today is Trust and Estates attorney Parrish Lentz to talk about adult children and COVID-19. If you're the parent or legal guardian of a child over 18, you may not realize that you do not have certain access to health care and financial information for that child. Parrish, thank you for joining me today. It's nice to have you. Always a pleasure. <laughs> so this is kind of an unparalleled fall that we're heading into. There has been a lot of upheaval over the summer about children heading to college, whether they take a gap year, they head into the military. So I think this year in particular is fraught with many concerns, and it seems like a pretty good year to focus in on the concept that when your child reaches 18, they may still be a dependent, but you may not necessarily have the same legal rights to access to information that you used to have. So I'm excited to have you here today. How can we get the ball rolling? Well, just as we were getting ready for this podcast, I happened across an article, and the title is, My Just Graduated High School Senior Got Coronavirus on Day 11 of Leaving the Nest. Here's what I've learned. So you know, we've always recommended that for our clients, when they have children who turn 18, they should circle the calendar and make an appointment for us so that they have these powers of attorney to help them because legally their lives change and they become adults. And all of these accesses that we've had and we've taken for granted are suddenly closed off or can be closed off. So, um, and part of our training is just we get ready for the worst case scenario, mm-hmm. you know, make sure people are, are prepared and they plan instead of having to improvise and hustle and uh, sort of work it up on the fly. So this uh, article, the uh, woman's son was taking a gap year and working for the uh, Civilian Conservation Corps and was far away, 1600 miles away and tested positive for, for coronavirus. So this fall, Unlike any other fall we've ever had, I think people really need to to focus on this and make sure they have their ducks in a row. Yeah. Maybe we can start by, um, can you provide us with the legal definition of what an adult child is? Yeah. I mean, an adult uh, in most states, and, you know, I'm licensed to practice in Rhode Island and Massachusetts. It's definitely the case there. And I think it's true in most states. On your 18th birthday, you reach the age of legal majority, and you're no longer a minor. Your parents are no longer your natural guardians, and you need to be treated like an adult for purposes of dealing with institutions and schools and the military and employers and all that. It's a difficult thing because a lot of times we're focused on students graduating from high school and celebrating their independence. Uh, But at the same time, we as parents need to stay involved and be ready to help them out. Uh, Because let's face it, tuition, rent, food, cell phone, health insurance, we're still connected. We're very connected. So um, once our children, and I'm an adult child, I'm the child of my mother, and I've been doing this adult program a little bit longer than my children, who are in their 20s-ish, but they're an adult just like, just like I am, legally. 
hopefully slightly different levels of maturity. (laughs) So how exactly does a parent or legal guardian's rights change um, from what under 18 to over 18? What do they have and no longer have access to? So the the main thing that we are running into and that people will run into in the fall is access to their, what under the HIPAA uh, statute is their protected health information. So once someone reaches the age of majority, if as a parent, you got in touch with the doctor, the doctor said, well, I can't share that with you. That is protected health information. And there's a ton of training, screening, and liability for all hospitals and healthcare providers to protect patients' health information. They can't share it and they do get in big trouble, especially for the institutions that take federal money uh, for Medicare. So they have to protect these rights. So that's one thing. The other thing is, you know, if your child had a bank account that they set up and you just called up the bank and said, hey, I'd like to talk to you about this bank account, that's not going to work. They have a, a basket of rights that just ripen up when they turn 18. And this has happened for a lot of people if they, they're paying tuition for college and that child's at college and you call up the business office and you said, hey, I need to talk to you about the invoice. They say, well, we don't have a FERPA release, a Federal Educational Rights Protection Act release on file. We can't talk to you about the bill, even though you're trying to pay it. So uh, there's a whole range of things that people need to get prepared for and and plan for. Okay. Um, And how exactly will and can possibly COVID change the impact of this demographic and their families, and how can they be prepared? And and the the woman, Jennifer Folsom, who wrote this article, is trying to be helpful, and we're trying to be helpful and not be fear-mongering, and you you should be terrified, but just like with everything uh, for, that we do on the estate planning front, you have to be prepared. You have to have the documents in place. You need to have these conversations. The thing about COVID is, and I agree, she says in the article is, you should anticipate that your child is going to be exposed to this virus. And they may test positive. And, and also, that's a conversation to have about you do need to wear a mask. You do need to wash your hands. You do need to have a bucket of sanitizer in your backpack that just sprays out onto your hands and maybe your entire body at all times. But it's a very unsettled time. And this is the best that you can do. The other thing is to have a plan in place, really familiarize yourself with, uh, and whether it's college, whether it's a military, whether it's a, a gap year, someone's driving cross country, you need to have everything you can in place. It's a driving cross country. Make sure they have AAA. Maybe you have the app where that, that tracks their location. You have, are you going to call us every other day at eight o'clock at night or whatever? Because I think what's happening, we're all going to feel better if we have a plan and, and, and keep track of each other. But like this author of this article, I was a resident advisor in college and any congregate living situation, any dorm these protocols are going to break down because you're, you know, you're not supposed to kiss people. You're not supposed to share drinks. You're supposed to always wash your hands. And it's very close quarters. And, uh, you know, people are not always going to make good decisions. And, I mean, we've seen that. We've seen the, the pictures that people post of, 
of the parties. And, you know, that's just a risk that we have to be aware of. So, you know, we really should plan for it. And we've never seen anything like it. Yeah. But but we have to be ready. Right. Right. And that does, again, not to be fear mongering, but um, the kinds of things that you're meaning are if your child does get COVID and they have to go to the hospital without the documentation and your child being able to talk to you, you don't have a right to know what's happening, even if you're paying their bills and paying for their health insurance. Yeah, in fact, uh, I was rereading this article and um, the author pointed out that she found out that her son had COVID by accident because her son had given mom's cell phone number to the health department or whoever was doing the contact tracing. So they called and said, oh, hi, so-and-so, I need to get in touch with you, you know, let you know you've tested positive for COVID. And like, oh, by the way, this is mom. And sometimes there's a delay with students who have a newfound independence. They don't necessarily, and of course, all children are different, but some children are like, you know, I'll just deal with this on my own, which sometimes is I'm not going to deal with it at all. So, so we definitely need to to keep in touch. The, the other thing that people might do as part of their planning is find out if that the college, the, the military, the, wherever the, they're driving cross country is to sort of figure out, and especially for a college, are you in a small community where there's just the college health service or is your child in Boston where there's a, a hat full of good hospitals, but you kind of need to figure out, oh, you know, where would they be treated and would you try and get them home? Um, but there's a lot of a lot of possibilities that probably needs to be reviewed carefully in a conversation well before a lot of students, a lot of young people disappear for the week right before they leave. I, my experience was uh, children vanished to uh, make sure they connected with everybody before they left that mm-hmm. week or so before. So the sooner the better. Okay. So let's talk about the relevant documents. Can you tell us what parents and adult children need to have in place? You bet. Um, definitely, you need to have a, uh, and, and there's, the catch-all phrase is advanced directives. Mm-hmm. And that covers living wills and uh, healthcare powers of attorney and healthcare proxies. But uh, for Rhode Island, the statute describes it as a healthcare power of attorney. Massachusetts, it is a a healthcare proxy, but it is a document that names someone to make healthcare decisions on your behalf, any adult, to make decisions on your behalf when you're not capable of making those decisions. So technically, it's not effective. You, you're not someone's healthcare agent or proxy or, until they're not able to make healthcare decisions for themselves. Technically, however, if a hospital or a provider has the healthcare power of attorney, they will tend to communicate with the parent. Now, technically, they should have a, a separate document, which is a HIPAA authorization. You know, that healthcare power of attorney or proxy is a critical uh, document to have. And I think we're going to provide on our website some links for. Uh, Massachusetts and Rhode Island, there are some established like uh, Department of Health websites where they do have a, a suggested form for that. So that names the who, and then this separate document, which is a, a HIPAA uh, authorization, 
will name other people who can communicate with uh, the providers. They don't necessarily have the decision-making function. They don't have the vote, uh, but it will open that line of communication, which is, which is critical. How does that differ from your child listing you as their emergency contact? The difference is you don't define the emergency. And there was an unfortunate case in Rhode Island where there was a, a young adult who was going in repeatedly for heroin overdoses, and his parents were listed as the emergency contact. He would come in, they would give him the Narcan or the, the drug that would uh, interrupt the opioid, and you know he would become with it. And they said they would, then they would ask him, "Do you want us to contact your emergency contact at your parents?" Oh no, you know because he was you know obviously or maybe obviously didn't want to keep you know let them know what was happening with his heroin use. So the hospital was stuck between the patient self determination, the patient making the decision, and. You know, they didn't necessarily, I don't know, but I suspect they didn't have a HIPAA authorization or a healthcare power of attorney. So they said to this person, do you want us to contact your emergency contact? No, because the, the drug is very effective, you know, wasn't going to overdose anymore and probably wasn't under the effects of the opi opioid anymore. So that emergency contact is limited. However, it's important to have all of this in place, especially for, I think, if your child is going into the workplace have them reach out to HR if something terrible happens to you at work. Make sure they have the emergency contact. Maybe they also have the healthcare power of attorney. It, it, you know, they, it's an opportunity to connect with the HR person or the student life officer at the school or the, whoever the military contact is. But it's, it's never too soon to start that network and developing those relationships and opening those lines of communication. Okay. And... Just to throw out a scenario at you, um, if a parent is the emergency contact and they don't have healthcare proxy or HIPAA, but they're contacted by a hospital to say your child's in the hospital, they're very ill, they're on a ventilator, other than that information and they rush to the hospital, are they sort of paralyzed from doing anything without those forms in place? Uh, no. But, well... It depends uh, if the hospital, I think there's an, um, there's an emergency exception for HIPAA, you know, where there's a life-threatening situation. However, there was a case in Texas of, this is terrible and very unusual, and this is probably why it was in the news, but this was what was reported was that a parent had two children, the parent was out of state, two children were in a, a car accident, very bad one, and they were in, I think, in a coma, they couldn't make decisions. And before the hospital would, was going to require them to get a guardianship because they didn't have the healthcare powers of attorney, require them to get a guardianship to make some, you know, the big decisions about treatment, ventilators and, and procedures and things like that. So it's not worth counting on a hospital to help you out. And to say, well, you know, really, we technically we should have the healthcare power of attorney, but this is a life and death situation. You really don't want to rely on that. It frequently works out fine, but again, we're we're here to plan and prepare, not to to encourage people to improvise because it it doesn't always go well. Right, and it takes time when time is of the essence. 
Exactly. Okay. Um, now to the financial documents that you had mentioned. Yeah. Um, so a financial power of attorney will allow you to pay bills, sign tax returns, deal with insurance companies. And the most common thing is to deal with landlords. So if your young adult is, has a difficult landlord and you know they might seek you out to advocate on, your, on the child's behalf and the landlord will say, you're not on the lease, Karen, you know, beat it. I'm not going to deal with you. If you have that power of attorney, then, you know, you have the same rights and the same powers and, as your child does. So that can sometimes back those people down who are sometimes difficult and used to kind of bullying younger adults. That's probably our most useful way to do that. Although some people, if their children are abroad, they do, they do file their tax returns for them. But the power of attorney form is, is a little different. There's, we can't really point to something on, on the internet that's you know, a, a, as reliable as the healthcare forms. They also need to be you know, carefully uh, executed so that a bank or some other institution will accept them. Okay. Are these documents state-specific? So um, if I reside in Massachusetts, my, my child's permanent residence is in Massachusetts, um, but that child falls ill in a different state where they are temporarily residing or out of the country, does that limit the effectiveness of the documents? And where should those documents be filed, filled out? <laughs> well, all the each state, Oh, definitely Rhode Island and Massachusetts, they have a statute that authorizes these healthcare powers of attorney and proxies. Um, if you're a resident of Massachusetts or Rhode Island, uh, you should have a Rhode Island or Massachusetts uh, healthcare power of attorney. Most states and Rhode Island and Massachusetts have in their statute about healthcare powers of attorney that they will accept validly executed powers of attorney from other states, just like they will wills or, or contracts in, under the, also under the full faith and credit clause of our fabulous constitution. So it's really, and, and I should say most providers and most institutions want to be able to use the power of attorney, especially in healthcare situations. So if someone is a resident and Almost all of our clients, uh, unless a child, it's because it's very rare for a child who's 18, 19, 20, I'm going to California and I'm never coming back. I'm going to be a, you know, that's, that's pretty unusual. So typically, you know, we will set these up as, you know, um, Massachusetts or Rhode Island, but it should be, you know, from your, from your home state, but it also should be recognized uh, by providers in other states. But again, like we said before, it's never too soon to ask about that. And, you know, if your child's going to college, if they have a, a health service, provide that copy and say, this is valid. Please confirm that it's valid. Okay. And um, in terms of the document's effectiveness, uh, do they need to be notarized, witnessed, any other requirements that people may miss if they're looking on the internet and doing their own form. 
Yeah, that is a risk of trying to do it yourself is if a document is not validly executed. And sometimes if it is, banks will say, well, we can't accept this. It's more than 10 years old or it's, you know, they come up with some things that aren't technically accurate. And sometimes we call and have a discussion with them and sort of straighten that out. But for uh, the, the healthcare documents, it's the same for both Massachusetts and Rhode Island. You can either have two unrelated witnesses sign, so mom and dad cannot be the witnesses if you know they're going to be the agents. So you need to get the neighbors or the lawyers or someone to be the witnesses, or you can have one notary public notarize the signature, which may be better. A lot of institutions will be more comfortable seeing that notary seal and the notary stamp there, and they can, you know, if they really got excited, they could look onto the secretary of state website and confirm that that person is a notary uh, in, in the state. So, uh, but it is, if people are doing it themselves, they do need to be careful about the execution. And if you can't get to us, there are notary services. And it's also an opportunity to connect with the school, you know, and say, you know, can we use your notary or the employer say, oh, can we use your HR person who's a notary? Um, or they can go to a, you know, a UPS or some sort of a packaging store that might have a notary service. Okay. In addition to the documents that you've mentioned, what else can parents and legal guardians do to be prepared for potential quarantine or illness? I think they need to know what they're going into, the situation, and they need to have a plan, especially in case of a quarantine. If someone, a child tests positive, uh, what's that quarantine going to look like? Can they get home? Do they want to get home? Is it better to quarantine where they are? If they're, you know, sort of stuck where they are, they're a thousand miles away, then set up a FaceTime and a Zoom schedule. Part of what is in the, this article is also to keep in mind the mental health and physical health aspect of being kind of locked into a room for a week or two weeks, that's uh, sort of like prison. You know, it, it'll have that impact on people. So I think she, the mom in this, in this article, sort of communicated with these people, like, appreciate the quarantine. Obviously, he's tested positive. Obviously, we have to be careful. But he needs to get out of that room. You know, he needs to get some sunlight. So that is something that you sort of need to start, you know, looking at for the situation that, that your child is going to be in and maybe also figure out, Oh, what's the food situation going to be like? How, you know, can we get deliveries to this, to the child? Also, when you go through that protocol, figure out what the testing situation is. Unfortunately, it's really different in different States. And sometimes there's a huge lag and that might increase the amount of time that, that they have to quarantine. Um, like I said before, find out, are they in a, a sort of a closed college healthcare system, or maybe find out, hey, if they had to go to an emergency room, what's the hospital situation? And that might also inform whether you want to, you know, get your child home, because you might not be comfortable with the hospital situation of, of where they're located. The author's son did have mild symptoms, but he was sick. And, you know, he has a potentially deadly virus. So uh, some of our clients who are professors, especially who are a little, you know, in their 50s, 60s, 70s, are extremely nervous about getting back into this, this situation. 
I think the other thing is if your child is treating with a mental health professional to make sure that they are in the loop and maybe they have some extra FaceTime or Zoom or however they, you know, they have their networks that they use. You know, can you imagine you've left home, you've been away for less than a month, you test positive, they tell you you can't leave your room. And this is kind of the time when you, you know, whether it's work or school or whatever, this is the time you're out meeting the people that you're going to be with, you know, for the next couple of years. So you need to keep that network fresh and keep everybody keep everybody involved. And some schools are mandating that you can only come with a limited amount of baggage. So uh, no matter what, people probably should focus on traveling light because some of the quarantine situations, you might move to a separate room or different rooms. You know, there may be different stops along the way. So people should keep that in mind, traveling uh, on the lighter side. I think for, for my son, uh, he's limited to two suitcases. And then, of course, all the parents say, what's a suitcase? <laughs> so, but we definitely are going to keep that in mind that, that he might have to, to move because of the, the quarantine. Okay. If a child, if parents are listening to this or guardians and their child is already well on their way to wherever they're going, is it too late? to do these documents? No, never too late. Okay. Um, ideally, they have that in their hot little hands when they, when they get to where they're going. Or for the young people who are on the road or working on boats or you know whatever they're doing, um, they should have them. If they don't, we can, and again, it's an opportunity to connect with the employer or the school. We can send them, if we prepare the documents, We'll send them a nice little packet with all the sign here and notarize here stickers and, you know, help them, you know, find a notary, make sure they get that all signed up. And we also have a self-addressed stamped envelope to get back, you know, get the originals back so that we have digital copies of the original. And then if we need to, we can send the originals to the parents, but it, it's not too late. We also have people who, uh, mean to do this and they even set up an appointment and like i said their children have their own agenda and schedule for that last 10 days two weeks or month before they leave and uh, the parents cannot get on the dance card so we'll do something at thanksgiving or the winter break and do that but it's not too late and i, I would urge people not to cop out on oh gosh we, we missed it right Right. And now we're not, we're just not going to do it at all. That's, uh, that's really a cop out. And like we talked about before, never seen anything like this. This is sort of what we've always, you know, when we tell people to be prepared, these documents we, we prepared for people, you know, 20 years ago before there was coronavirus. But I can't think of a single time in my legal career that this has been more important than right now. Yeah. Yeah. And it almost sounds like it may be better to not wait till Thanksgiving either. Well, no, I mean, this, this poor woman's uh, story, her son was off on this, this adventure working for the Civilian Conservation Corps. It sounded pretty cool. And to test positive, like basically when he got there, it was, uh, that's a bad result. Um, she was fortunate. She had uh, for the birthday breakfast, 
uh, she's had them, her boys down and they were twins and they each got to assign these powers of attorney. <laughs> Happy birthday. <laughs> it seems like the right gift, though, this, yeah. given where we're at. <laughs> I love it. Parrish, can we talk a little bit about cost? Um, how much would it cost to put these kinds of documents together? What are your thoughts on accessing online documents like LegalZoom that we all hear the advertisements for? Our package, if we prepare healthcare power of attorney, a HIPAA authorization, and a financial, a durable power of attorney, we charge $300, $350, something like that. And, you know, we also, we do house calls. So it might be a little bit more if we, if we need to do a house call. We, I did meet with a family last week. Their, their three children and their baby daughter was going off the last one leaving the nest and she said oh we got to get these documents in place oh and we also need them for the middle son he'd been coasting for three years and she's like ah that's the middle kid um but yeah it's probably you know in the 300 dollars range and in terms of the you know legal zoom i would encourage people to be careful about that if you want to do something that's you know, we do have the references on our website to the healthcare ones. And people have run into trouble with those forms. One of the, you know, the values that we add is that, you know, I certify that I'm a lawyer licensed to practice in these jurisdictions. And if a bank or provider has a question, you know, I can say, you know, this was validly prepared, validly executed. And if you use a, a form on the web, you know, you can't, have legal zoom call the bank and say, well, you know, they're not lawyers and it's difficult to be in a situation where you've gone to the time and effort and for legal zoom, the expense of preparing these and then they don't work. So, um, I would not a fan of legal zoom and it's a competitor. So, uh, but I, I do think, um, people, if they do want to do that, really take a close look at it and, and kind of see what you're paying for and what you're getting. We also make sure that it's executed properly. So like if, you know, we send it out to somebody and we get it back and it's not properly witnessed or notarized, we say, Hey, we're, you know, this isn't going to work. We're going to send you out another batch and we'll do it properly and make sure that it's, it's done right. And we also are a resource to say, if a parent is stuck somewhere and said, Hey, can you email this to the hospital? Can you email this to the bank? Can you fax it to the bank? We can, we can help out doing that. Yeah, yeah. And also just just to vouch for the fact that going to uh, an attorney in person, you can ask them a lot of questions and they give a lot of valuable guidance that you wouldn't get through a legal Zoom. And sometimes that's what you need because the feelings, especially this year, are very stressful and it's nice to have that in-person contact. Another benefit is that, and when I met with this family, both of the children said, what is all this? Why do I need this? Why, why are my parents going for this, you know, control over my life? And I said, well, you know, are they paying your tuition? Are they helping you? Oh, yes. Um, I said, but I'm your lawyer and you can fire your parents, but I, you know, that comes with some other challenges if you do that. But do you understand you know, this is really a, a backstop. This is to protect you. You understand bad things can happen and this will help your parents really advocate for you. But it's a great discussion and it's a very healthy one. And going through that, when they signed it, I felt like everyone in the room could exhale a little bit 
and and get behind the program a lot more than just, you know, you know, sign the papers. Well, Parrish, thank you for joining me and talking today. And I wish you and your sons that are heading off to college the best and fingers crossed that they stay healthy and there's not too much drama and upheaval in the year ahead. Oh, right back at you. Oh, thank you. Um, and as Parrish mentioned, the article that he was discussing and um, some of the links to the healthcare proxy forms, we will place those on the bglaw.com website along with this podcast so you can reference it. And as always, if you have any questions uh, throughout our website, there's a, a plenty of contact forms, and you can reach out to Parish directly. For more information, please visit our website at www.bglaw.com. Parish has other podcasts, um, extensive client alerts, and a, a lot of information in the area of trust and estates as, as well as others. Um, so thank you to our listeners, and thank you, Parish. Uh, everybody have a good day and be healthy. The content provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to constitute legal advice or to form an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to seek legal advice from a Barton Gilman attorney, please visit us at www.bglaw.com or call 888-273-9903 for more information. Barton Gilman serves clients throughout the Northeast with offices in Boston, Providence, and New York, offering legal services in a wide variety of matters, including medical and other professional liability defense, premises liability and business litigation, education law, employment, family law, insurance coverage, trust and estates, criminal defense, corporate formation, and intellectual property. The firm and its attorneys have received numerous awards and accolades including Best Lawyers, Best Law Firms, Best Places to Work Rhode Island, Outstanding Philanthropic Business, The Common Good Award, and Super Lawyers. For more information about Barton Gilman, please visit our website at www.bglaw.com or call us toll-free at 888-273-9903.